here today with uh, Dr. Charles Wyckoff. We're going to talk about the exciting phase three results from the Farisimab study on diabetic macular edema. Charlie, what were the results? John, great to be here with you. You know, we've been, we've been living in the anti-VEGF era for a long time. And I think there's been a lot of pent up energy in the whole field to try and find additional pathways and additional mechanisms of action that bring value to our patient. And, and the, uh, you know, I think the most promising shot on goal there for a number of years has been manipulation of the tie two pathway. It's a complicated pathway. Um, there's a lot of different ways you can manipulate that pathway. But now we have strong data showing value with inhibition of angiopotin 2 um, having additive benefits beyond VEGF A blockade. Uh, so it's exciting. It's exciting to see this data. Um, as you referred to, we presented top line data from the Farisimab phase three program, both in DME and neovascular AMD at angiogenesis uh, this last weekend. Um, and the data is strong. There's good durability signal in both the DME and the neovascular AMD data set. I presented the DME data and Jeff Heyer presented the neovascular AMD data. So happy to talk through sort of uh, the specifics of what we saw in DME. But the short answer is, I think it's exciting. There's still a lot to learn from this data. There's still additional long-term data that will be forthcoming and a bunch of additional analyses of the current data set um, but the first look at this data is that it appears strong and meaningful for patients. What about visual acuity data? What tell, Talk to us something about the primary endpoint. Yeah, absolutely. So first of all, trial design. You know, the phase two um, trials, there were three phase two trials of furosemab, um, uh, one in DME and then two in neovascular AMD. The DME phase two is a very well-designed trial. Over 200 patients, the comparator there was ranibizumab, 0.3 milligrams compared to furosemab. And in that phase two program, there was a superiority signal of furosemab, six milligrams compared to 0.3 milligram ranibizumab, visual acuity wise, with supportive secondary endpoints across the board anatomically. But in the phase three program, there was a different comparator that was used. And this, I think, was a really important step to to use a flibercept as the comparator in the phase three program. So they had the strongest possible comparator arm. So a flibercept two milligrams given on label Q8, Q8 weeks after five monthly doses in DME. Um, and then there were two furisimab arms. There was a fixed every eight week dosing interval, just like a flibercept, except instead of five monthly doses, there were six monthly doses with the flibercept arm. And the reason for that sixth dose was simply the phase two data. Whereas in phase two, it appeared that you continued to have visual benefit by continued monthly dosing through six months. And so we wanted to try to maximize that opportunity for visual gain. So six monthly doses in the Frisimab Q8 arm. And then the third arm of the phase three trial was um, Frisimab PTI, our personalized treatment interval, which was essentially a treat and extend application of Frisimab after four monthly loading doses. So we're three arms, in both Yosemite and Rhyme, both independent but identically designed phase three trials. And these were structured as non-inferiority trials where the first sort of statistical look was non-inferiority of, of each furisimab arm compared to the aflibercept arms. If that was met, the statistical plan was to then look for superiority 
among the treatment naive population. Uh, because treatment uh, previously treated patients were allowed into the study, but that was capped at 25%. Um, and non-inferiority was achieved, but superiority visual acuity wise was not achieved. So what I mean by that is that through one year, the visual acuity gains were robust across all of the arms with gains of between about 10 and a half to about 11 and a half letters across all of the arms with the 95% confidence intervals all overlapping. So no indication of superiority um, uh, and clearly non-inferior between each of the arms, uh, frisimab arms compared to a flibrocent. Where the value of frisimab really appeared to shine was uh, both from an anatomic perspective and from a durability perspective. And in particular, we reported five anatomic endpoints, right? So if we look from a CST perspective, um, change from baseline across the studies appear to consistently favor ferisumab. The ferisumab arms, both of them appear to be consistently drier in the aflibercept population. Um, the second anatomic endpoint that appeared to favor ferisumab was looking at the portion of patients that had absence of DME. And this was defined as a CST below the enrollment threshold of 325 microns using a spectralis. And this proportion was consistently greater with frisimab, reaching over 80% within one year. And the third point that favored frisimab was the proportion of patients with absence of intraretinal fluid. Um, and this was consistent across week 16, 48, 52, and 56. So those three anatomic endpoints clearly favored frisimab. The other two were um, uh, very similar between the comparator flibercept and frisimab, and that was absence of subretinal fluid. This was achieved in the vast majority of patients, over 95% of patients in each arm. And then DRSS improvements, diabetic retinopathy, severity improvements, again, were similar between the arms. And the last point I would make is that anatomic data um, uh, was very consistent with the strong durability signal that was seen. So 12 weeks or greater dosing was achieved within one year in about 72% of patients. Um, uh, and 50% of patients were able to make it 16 weeks um, uh, between furosemab dosing by the end of one year. So clearly a, a, a signal for a durability and clearly a consistent anatomic signal with furosemab. So how do you think this um, furosemab will be deployed clinically as we see it being used? I, I presume this is going to receive FDA approval. Um, how will it be used? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. And, and you, you bring up a good point, right? It's not yet FDA approved. It's not yet commercially available. Um, I'm not involved in that process, but the company um, the, the sponsor has said publicly, Roche Genentech, that they are planning to file with regulatory agencies, both in the U.S. and ex-U.S., by the end of the second quarter, 2021, which, which seems remarkably um, uh, fast, very impressive timeline, um, uh, uh, given that this data has just been publicly released, you know, uh, here in the, in the second week of February. Um, so the other, the other you know, angle to discuss related to commercial utility is, is of course, any, any you know, side effects, any, any adverse events from the drugs. And I say that mostly because the environment now is very different, having um, all of us experience sort of the, 
the inflammatory issues with brilocizumab and abicapar in the phase three programs. And then um, once commercial, commercial use of brilocizumab um, began, we saw, we saw those, those numbers validated in the real world. Um, and so the use of brilocizumab has not been nearly what we all anticipated because of the safety signal. So when we look at the safety signals of furisumab, and we've tried to look at those extremely carefully, just given the, the real sensitivity and the genuine need to understand these safety signals in detail, um, uh, we noted that the overall rates of intraocular inflammation and, and endophthalmitis were low across both programs, the neovascular AMD and the DME program. In particular in DME, if you pool all the frismab arms and all of the aflibercept arms, the rate of IOI was about 1.3% with frismab and 0.6% with aflibercept. So numerically, you know, as, as some have pointed out, that's slightly higher with frismab. But the interesting observation is that, that, you know, I think all of these rates are low and, and below the um, USPI, the, you know, the, the package insert for both aflibercept and um, ranibizumab in both DME and neovascular AMD. Furthermore, there were no retinal vasculitis cases. There were no occlusive retinitis cases. Um, there was nothing um, of concern um, that I saw from a safety signal here. But the good thing related to especially safety and longer term efficacy is that we have second year data from both of these phase three programs, DME and neovascular AMD, as well as long-term extension studies. So the sponsor, Roche Genentech here, did a beautiful job of, of establishing um, long-term um, data opportunities early in this clinical trial program. So ultimately we'll have four-year data from both DME and Neovastor AMD because of the long-term extension studies that are already set up. Talk a little bit more about the durability data. Could you uh, refresh our viewers about that? Yeah, this is always an interesting angle, right? Because the comparator arm, a flibercept, in both the neovascular AMD and the DME program was limited. It was limited in that it was a Q8 dosing interval after monthly doses at the beginning, five monthly doses in DME and three monthly doses in neovascular AMD. And the reason for that comparator arm is very clear, right? The reason is that you, from a regulatory perspective, you have to have an on-label dosing arm to be able to get um, a, a clear indication um, for a new product. And that's why you have consistent aflibercept dosing throughout these trial programs. And you don't allow the frisimab arm, or excuse me, you don't allow the aflibercept arms to extend the interval um, uh, at, beyond Q8. And so there's always a little bit of a limitation because now you have the comparator for frisimab, the, the, the new product that's, that's, that has one arm in DME um, which, which allows a personalized treatment interval where you can go longer than every eight week dosing and you can actually go shorter than every eight week dosing. Um, in particular, we allowed patients to get individualized therapy based on their anatomic and visual need. So for example, in the PTI arm, they got four monthly doses. And then if their CST was less than 325 microns, they extended the interval over time out to 12 and then every 16 uh, weeks. 
Whereas if they did not achieve a 325 micron retina or thinner, they maintain monthly dosing actually through the end of one year, which was about 7% of patients maintain monthly dosing. Um, but then right, 93% of patients did not need monthly dosing. And in BME and in the Avastor AMD, there was, I would say a remarkable durability signal. So in DME, over 70% of patients achieved a 12 week or greater interval and over 50% of patients achieved a 16 week um, uh, interval by one year. And in Neovast or AMD, those numbers were remarkably similar. So almost 80% of the Neovast or AMD population achieved a 12 week or greater interval. And about 45% of the Neovast or AMD patients achieved a 16 week interval. So I think we're seeing a real durability signal here. Um, uh, and you know how that durability signal will play out in, in real world utilization will be fascinating because all of these trials have particular criteria that define these treatment intervals. And in the real world, the uh, criteria that we use might be slightly different. And so that transition from clinical trial data to real world will be fascinating uh, once it's commercially available. So do you think that the uh, farisimab, uh, the bispecific molecule, will replace the anti-VEGF monotherapy agents? I don't know. I think it's a little early to conclude that. I, I personally am a fan of more tools in the toolbox. I, I only see value when additional agents come to market. Um, it's sort of the analogy I use with my patients is blood pressure medications and cholesterol medications. You know, one of the reasons there are so many products that control blood pressure is um, different patients respond differently to different medications. And I am excited that we're going to have a new mechanism of action to be able to inhibit angiopotin 2 and restore Chi 2 signaling in these eyes. I think it's going to bring value to patients. Now, will all patients need to have um, ANG2 blockade to optimize their outcomes? Probably not, but I think we, we don't know the definitive answer to that. I look forward to additional long-term data, additional secondary and post-hoc analyses of these data to really try to understand who are the patients, what are the particular anatomic characteristics um, that lend themselves to better outcomes with ANG2 blockade compared to VEGF-A blockade monotherapy. Will furosemide be studied in non-proliferative diabetic retinopathy without CME? I certainly hope so. And my prediction is yes. I think that's going to be a very important um, population to study, uh, right? You know, they can think the, the mechanism of action of ANG2 blockade is, is multifactorial. And there's some great preclinical data to suggest that, that inhibition of angiopoietin 2 at earlier stages of disease May, may change the disease course in a way that VEGF-A blockade monotherapy may not be able to do. So that data um, is really important ultimately to uh, look at. And as far as I know, those trials are not yet ongoing, but I look forward to um, uh, being a part of those trials over time. Well, Charlie, thanks a lot for this exciting data. Another chapter is opened in the therapy of diabetic macular edema. Thank you. Exciting times for all of us. Thanks, Carmen. Okay.